Welcome everybody to the 11th Farming for Change podcast with Ben Taylor-Davis and myself, James Smith. And we are incredibly fortunate today to have with us Andy Cato from Wild Farmed. Um, we've just had a, a good walk around Townsend Farm here with Ben, seeing what he's up to. Welcome Andy. Thank you very much, lovely to be here. Great stuff. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I will do. But first of all, um, yeah, thanks for uh, for the invite to come over today. Great to see everything. And I just don't know how, um, I was going to say you, but I understand it's Helen, basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, makes that number of things happen in any one day. Um, and what a day to have my first view ever of the River Wye. Yeah. Yeah, quite magical. So, uh, yeah, it's lovely to be here. And, um, yeah, I uh, don't come from farming background. As you probably know, I did music for, for most of my life. And I had this sort of road to Jerusalem moment when I read this article about conventional, industrial, chemical, whatever name you want to put in it, food production and what that means, started growing vegetables, fell in love with the whole process of seeds becoming plants and plants becoming food and ended up um, in a moment of absolute madness looking back on it, that I now don't regret but often did, uh, was to sell my song publishing rights to buy a farm in France. Everything went wrong, slowly came right and um, and then we ended up with a farm bakery and shop and creating employment and you know uh, it was a success story in the, in the end uh, but it was at that moment that I met George and Ed with whom I worked with on on Wild Farm and our sort of thinking was they're both from different backgrounds like I was and we just saw the barriers to change that farmers face and wanted to join the ranks of people trying to help with that so that's how that happened and as a result of that I needed to be back in the UK really to be part of this movement and so I'm now a National Trust tenant, about right. an hour and a half from here, um, near Swindon. Yeah. And is the thing still running in France? Or well, we left in a bit of a hurry, really, because the, the, um, the, the National Trust farm came up. It's quite rare. It was very competitive. It was COVID, so it was like yeah. an agricultural reality TV show, all, everything <laughs> on Zoom and people being eliminated and everything. And then when it finally came through, it was, it was very last minute. So um, we pretty much sort of, you know, packed up some clothes, grabbed the cats, found some new schools for the kids and legged it, really. Yeah. So I'm actually going over there in a few days' time to See, pick up the pieces. <laughs> but now I've got a friend who I was working with who's, who's, who's moving the cattle around. Yeah. Everything was down to grass anyway because of the way we were growing the crops. So that's just ticking over and we've got a restaurant who buys the beef. So it's stable. Yeah. We just need to work out a plan. Oh, very cool. And tell us just a bit about the, the wild farm concept, how it works and, and what you're hoping to achieve with that. That um, obviously it's addressing some of the needs that you've kind of highlighted in terms of the issues around conventional farming. But um, what's what's your approach in terms of wild farming? Where's it going? Yeah, I mean it's it's evolved incredibly quickly. Um, not least because we've now got this community of around fifty farmers. You know, some amazing people uh, doing amazing things, and so it's a, it's a very movable feast. But the the basic idea, which remains unchanged, was that. I sort of battled through um, a lot of research and development and failures and everything else, and I was in a very lucky position that I could bail myself out of that by going and play some records, basically. Yeah. And so during that process, I uh, became friends with the farmers around me, and they were all from farming families, uh, and became acutely aware of the very underappreciated skill set that being a farmer requires. Just quite amazing levels of problem solving and, and, and just skills across such a massive range of areas uh, very humbling experience and and, and uh, but despite that for lots of reasons which you've talked about before um, and I imagine a lot of people listening will be aware of 
trapped in a system which was doing no one any favours, really. Mm. Uh, and so the, the original mission, which remains unchanged, was how can we unlock barriers to change? How can we help farmers do that? And we've got very little ecological road left, in my opinion. So how can we do it at scale and quickly? Yeah. What are your thoughts, Ben? No, it, it, what I find really interesting is, is, is the fact that you, you said you could manage your way out of problems with playing records. And one thing for me in this whole farming thing is, is the fact that diversity can form so many different ways and diversity of business and that sort of thing. And me being a consultant, I've heard on the pipeline that some people said, well, he can, he can afford to do what he likes because he's an international consultant. That's just a way of diversifying a business. It's not necessarily, it shouldn't be a criticism that that's what you do as well as. There are many, many, many farms for, for hundreds of years that have had to go and diversify or one family member had to go and find work and that sort of thing. So I don't, I don't think that's a real, real problem. I think there's an opportunity and I think if you're, if you're blessed in, in the way that you can do that, I think that's quite an important thing. So I'd... For me, I don't think it's anything that, that, that should be shamed on. That, Absolutely uh, not. Yeah, so, um, but, but uh, we still work quite hard on the weekend and that sort of thing. But the wild farm thing is, is something I, I, um, I have several clients looking at doing at the moment. I had a conversation this morning, actually, um, just outside Ships on Stair with a guy, Alex, and uh, he listens in, so uh, I did say I'd uh, mention his name. And um, interesting enough, he was—he's got this spring wheat uh, or spring opportunity where he doesn't really know what to grow. He, he, he's got—you know—he's doing some really cool things in terms of you know reducing his nitrogen inputs and reducing obviously everything. He, he, he's basically, and I said, well, the, the whole wild farm thing falls perfectly into what you're trying to achieve. He hadn't heard of it. So um, we went through that, and he got quite excited about actually the, 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 the idea of what I think, and Matt and Rick Fisher uh, hit on this the other day when I was with them, who, who were doing mm. some really cool stuff with you, the fact that basically it's, it's organic farming without all of the constraints of, of, of actually hundreds and hundreds of forms to fill in and all that sort of thing, and, and doing some really good things, and perhaps to a point it is is that middle ground that we're all searching for of, of decent crops, of, of integration of livestock, of all those sort of things that, that actually bring about, and we saw them, some really healthy gross margins. And um, that got me really quite excited, which um, is something we're, we're desperately looking to do here. So just talk us briefly through, you basically sign up arrangements with farmers on an acreage basis or, or whatever, and then you're buying the, buying the wheat back and then you're milling it and and so what's the what's the kind of the ambition in terms of where your flour is going to be sold well we've got an internal phrase that we've had uh, from the beginning between the three of us which is this is the long road to greg's mm -hmm. because this food from these kind of systems it needs to be on the high street you know there's a there's a phrase from wendell berry um, which is a kind of a bit bleak but i think he's right when he says that um and i'm not going to get this quite right but it's along the lines of if we don't build conservation into our day-to-day -day economic reality, it's going to be a series of rearguard actions on a dying earth. Yeah. And I think that was very beautifully put. And so our goal, because, you know, in France, I got to the point where I was doing the local community food thing. Now, if the whole countryside could be redesigned yeah. to be like that, magnificent. The reality is that we haven't got much time left and it isn't like that. Yeah. Uh, and so... How can we work within existing structures? And obviously there's arguments about land ownership, there's arguments about supermarkets, there's arguments about all these things. 
but you can get into a trap where you think, well, I can't fix everything, so I'll fix nothing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. our focus is we've got to get food from these systems onto the high street. Yeah. Now, doing that is, is, is complex for lots of reasons, not least because we're having to be competitive against other food suppliers which are not paying their environmental bills and health bills and all the yep. costs that Henry Dimbleby outlined in his, in his report, you know. And it's complicated for lots of reasons, but that is our North Star. We've got to get onto the high street. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the things we've talked about is, is this whole thing that as we've kind of ignored the environmental cost of food and everything else, not only is the, the wider environment suffering, but human health is suffering because the quality of food has declined so desperately over over the recent decades, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see that. Have you, in terms of the, you've obviously got a set of rules around how your crops are grown for, yeah. for Wild Farm. Have you seen positive, negative or neutral yield implications from what you're acquiring? And, and I suppose, how long has it been running for now? Well, I mean, I've been doing this for about 17 years, Wild yeah. Farm for about three years, but yeah. really as a sort of wider community, it's only a couple of years in, really, yeah, just early yeah. days. And feedback from, from growers initially, and, you know, because if I understand correctly, it's no synthetic ferts, no herbicide. Well, I'll keep going, because well, yeah, it's yeah. just changed. No, no, this yeah. is the point, Pest, pesticide, uh, basically no, no synthetics, yeah. effectively. But um, that's just, that's that's just changed, which is why Ben was grumbling in the back. Yeah, yeah, well, he's always grumbling. Yeah. <laughs> No, not at all. I, I, I mean, what I love about the whole idea is that Wild Farm are actually listening to yep. to, to the, the guys producing and saying, you know, we're really struggling with X, Y and Z and, and, and the, the, the small tweaks that are coming in, I think, are, are, are fantastic. That essentially the, the, the role of nitrogen is, is certainly uh, an issue uh, when it comes to growing quality wheat uh, for a milling market and that sort of thing and, and getting protein and that sort of thing. So that that's... Certainly something that you've, you've looked at, and I actually think you've probably gone a little bit too far. Um, mm-hmm. I think we could scale back a bit, that, that bit of nitrogen, but those that want... want well, to just on that point, because the nitrogen, up to this point, none of our growers have used any nitrogen. Mm-hmm. I've always formed, farmed organically, so I was just yeah. coming from that point yeah. of view anyway. And what we found was, well, there's just lots of factors that are coalescing around this. One is that when we, we spent you know, hundreds, if not thousands of hours with procurement departments of high street, operations of all types, taking them into fields, saying this is why your procurement budgets matter. Mm-hmm. You can turn fields that look like this into fields that look like this. Yeah. And instead of spending your sustainability budgets on the other side of the world, pay a bit more for your ingredients and then farmers can deliver those benefits at home. Yeah. This is a bank drum that we've been banging uh, incessantly. Because in, you don't need offsetting. Yeah, you insetting. just need to do the right, it's insetting, it's doing the, the right thing. It's the trendy word for it, isn't it? But, yeah. so, so then we started to get a bit of traction with that, but then some of them raised the, the, the question because food security posts you crazy in everyone's head. Yeah. So if we just back you and the whole landscape becomes this form of growing cereals, then are we not going to just rely on imports of grain from China? Mm-hmm. That's a reasonable question. Yeah. And so you have to uh, then do a calculation, which we've done, uh, which compares in quotes, conventional production versus a wild farm, whatever you want to call it, but following our protocols, production on a hectare, yeah. to see how that drops out, allowing for how much grain goes to livestock and all the rest of it. And, and the long and short of it is that if you're including pulses in there and you're reducing the amount of grain that goes to livestock just a little bit, uh, then it rapidly gets to a point where you can, you can farm in nature's image whilst comfortably feeding everyone. We haven't got a calorie problem, we've got a food quality and distribution problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the other bit around it was just 
just trying to manage some variables a little bit and we came to the conclusion after lots of round tables and consultations that nitrogen was the least worst thing yeah uh, and that actually if you look at it into it nothing's ever black and white so for example in Denmark organic growers uh, they're passing a law limiting organic growers to 70 kilos of nitrogen from conventionally farmed manures nitrogen which came out of a bag in the first place anyway yeah and the fact they're limiting it to 70 means that they're presumably doing more than that at the minute. So these, these conventional to organic nitrogen flows, are, you know, that's happening quite a lot. Yeah. And so our view was um, we settled on this figure of, of 70 kilos, which bent things a bit toppy, but with the provision that all of our nutrition, we're trying to get into this mindset of nutrition based on need. Yeah. So one of the things that growers get is these free sap tests. Yeah. And so, the, 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 and split doses, so maximum 40 kilo doses, making sure the plant needs it, trying to avoid excess, trying to avoid leaching, trying to buffer with carbon, you know, yeah, yeah. trying to make the best use of it we can. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's, it's really interesting. It's a bit like, you know, you're describing it as the, the long journey to Greg's, you know, for a lot of growers as well, it's about the journey and this sort of approach, as you mentioned earlier, Ben, is about this flexible approach and being able to slowly move to the right way of doing things rather than having a set of you know, rules slammed on you that may well set you up to fail first time round because there's nothing worse for a lot of growers where margins are tight anyway. You know, the first failure is often the one the one thing that puts them off. And we talked about this earlier on about we we tried cover crops, it doesn't work. Mm. You know, and it's it's enabling people to get their heads round a a new system for growing rather than just you know a new set of rules. But, I remember growing cover crops for the first time and they certainly didn't work. You, My, you always told me that black grass is the best cover crop. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, it was... Um, I remember we grew a monocrop mono of mustard and it basically turned the, um, the field into... A, or the soil into slime. It was absolutely horrific. No, no diversity, it was just thick mustard. Lots and lots of rain and then tried to make a seedbed beyond that and... Yeah, it's, it's incredible, your first impressions, how, how it actually puts you off for, for quite a while before you actually mm. start to have another look and another punt at, at what it was. And it, Yeah, and, and, and I think the whole regenerative thing, prob, or, or the problems a lot of people face is they take just one tiny aspect and try and implement it. And it's often something like a massive reduction in nitrogen without doing anything else to soil biology, without anything else to, to the soil, without anything else with, with companions and that sort of thing. And then go, well, I, well, I, I knocked, knocked my nitrogen in half and funny enough, it didn't work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's mm. about a thousand <laughs> reasons for that. And, that, and, that's, and that's where, as, as a consultant, I, I, I end up spending a lot of time just trying to align um, a lot of people have read a few books or lo- lots of podcasts or that or Farmers Weekly. It doesn't matter what you've read or, or seen. And the, the mindset's fantastic. The mindset's shifted in the, in the right thing. It's just actually making sure that they don't just leap into, into this abyss of, um, well, I've, I've missed eight of those things and um, I'm just going to do nine and ten and hopefully that, that will work. And that's, that's where I think you know, that becomes re- really quite important. Oh, I agree. And I think what's been really interesting is, as, as the community's got bigger is that actually, because at the moment it's a fairly blunt instrument, you know, we reward effectively, in my opinion, do the work the government should be doing, but we're rewarding growers for exerting, <laughs> avoiding externalities and avoiding societal costs of the way they're growing food for yeah. lots of different reasons by paying people a bit more for their grain. Yeah. And that's something that we want to evolve in the future into a more sort of complex 
cost of productions, environmental upsides, and just try to get that more complex. At the moment, we just we just pay a bit more. Yeah. Uh, and that paying a bit more thing, I can't. It's not irrelevant to getting people over the line, but actually, what's emerging, uh, I think, is that the sense of community around this, um, in terms of knowledge sharing, WhatsApp groups, field days, research trials that we're doing, being part of a, a field to plate traceable food chain, like eating what you've grown. Yeah. Uh, that's actually as much of the uh, of the appeal and the satisfaction that people are getting from this uh, than than just the margin. And I suppose on that, you know, because I've, I've met people that are growing for you, um, people that are having conversations with you about looking to, to, to grow for, for Wild Farm. Um, and obviously there are people that want to farm this way anyway. So, yeah. and then, they're, then it's like, when, and actually then there's a, there's a mechanic out there, there's a, there's a system out there and a, a, a business that can actually provide the market for, because there's always this danger between conventional and organic that, you know, you can try and do something in a better way, but your product is then not differentiated from exactly, yeah. the other. So you end up in this place where you're operating outside your comfort zone, producing a product that has no extra value because it's just going into a pot with everyone else. So, so pe- there's obviously people getting in touch because either through consultants or directly with Wild Farm in, in terms of delivering that. It, what's your sort of like expectations with growth in terms of, is it basically as much as you can get? Because obviously you've got to keep driving the, the, the demand for yeah. your product. Have you got a, have you, have you got a waiting list or <laughs> how does that it, work? It's, it's, it's a movable feast and it's oscillated over the last, even over the last few months where, where there's more like, there's farmers that were hesitant about taking on or whether, you know what I mean, both yeah. ends of the yeah, spectrum yeah. can move. I think we're now, we're now in a spot where a lot of these hard yards with these high street people uh, are starting to, to bear fruit. And so I think there's a real opportunity now to significantly expand the, uh, the number of growers in, uh, in the confidence yeah. that, that we've got a market for. I mean, ultimately, when anyone, anyone signs a contract, it's an absolute guarantee that we're going to buy the grain anyway. So if we yeah. can't, it's our problem. <laughs> but, no, but I think at the moment, what we need... I personally think that there may be a, uh, a tsunami wave of kind of faux regen branding, which may break uh, over supermarket shelves in the not-too-distant future. Yeah which will make what is, we know from hard experience on the, on the high street amongst consumers, it's really complicated yeah. telling the story of soil in such a noisy world. Yeah, because I, I wanted to pick up on that. Because in conversations I've been having with, with some people, you, you know, there's phrases to have around like, we're doing a bit of regen, you know, and there's, yeah. oh, regen, I hate that word, blah, 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 and a bit of eye rolling and all the rest of it. And it's, for those of us that operate in this space and, meet like-minded people and because it's a philosophy and a, and a way of behaving rather than terminology you know there is this real risk of this sort of greenwashing and you know things being done called one thing and done in a different way yeah. so I mean I, I, this is for both of you guys really it's just like in terms of you know navigating that that kind of because I, I feel it now and sometimes I almost don't want to say regenerative mm. uh, in that there are, there are plenty of people that are, they're not necessarily naysayers, but they just don't like it, um, which is absurd to me, really, because everything it stands for is basically represents solutions to a lot of our problems. But I'll just throw that out there and see, see what you guys think. I mean, I mean it's, it, it's, it's like anything that, first of all, when it comes out, it's new, it's trendy, it's exciting, and everybody jumps onto it. Or, or not many people are doing it. Yeah, and then... And, and then, <laughs> a, and then it's the first person that can't wait then to, to actually try and break it. And it becomes then trendy to try and break, break that thing. Um, I, I just, 
I just think the biggest problem is, um, and most are saying, well, why don't we just call it farming? And I think the biggest problem is, I can't wait to call it just farming. Yeah, I really agreed. can't wait to call it just farming. But we need to show that we are building soils, we are restoring the environment and, and, and the ecology of, of, of farmland and that sort of thing. And we're actually, you know, at the moment, it's 10 calories of fossil fuels producing one calorie of food. You know, it is, it is that horrific. It, it, you know, so until somebody can actually show that is exactly the, the reverse of what they are actually achieving and that sort of thing, I think we've got to call it, we've got to label it as something different than, yeah. than just farming. And that, that's the big, big one for me. And, you know, you show me your building souls, you know, and we're trying our hardest here. But, you know, as I said um, on, on the tour, we, we've got a field that's lost 400,000 tonnes. We're not going to, you know, since 1974. Mm. We're not going to put 400,000 tons of soil back, back, back there in the, you know, in the next 50 years. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's going to take a lot, probably longer than that. Who, know, who knows? But you know, you know, organic matter and various soil building techniques uh, are certainly helping. But I can't wait for the day that that field sort, sort of outgrows the six meter margin surrounding it, rather than actually just keeps dropping you know, what has been historically um, inches per year. Um, so that's why I think um, regenerative is, is such a still an important word. And how, so how do, we, how do we combat the, like, as you say, like the, the faux regenerative branding I, I, and that sort of thing? Well, we obviously think about this quite, quite a lot. And well, I think every situation has its upsides and downsides. I, I was thinking about this recently that the organic movement to have created an internationally recognised set of rules is an absolutely incredible achievement. Yeah, I never really thought about it properly before. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, and with that comes consumer trust. I think of all the sort of 400-ish eco-labels that are around, I think there's even maybe more than that now. Yeah. But the, the, the organic logo um, has gained trust from that sort of rigour. Don't, don't you think that's really easy, though? Because it's set on a base of, of rules that are we don't rather than we do I know but I, I, I think whatever the, the whys and wherefores of the rules yeah, yeah. Just, they, they've got to a point where they've got trust yeah, yeah. and when someone like us comes along we're smaller so we can be fluid and we can change these rules uh, to get to a set of parameters which with the best available information today yeah. and based on the consensus of really good farmers today we can say right if we adopt these rules and they're audited so people are doing what they say they're doing and we measure outcomes with people like the Soil Association Exchange or however you want to do it, yeah. then we're making things better. So we can go with all honesty to our customers and say, we're making things better. But they need to believe us. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so that, I think there's no magic bullet there. Now, part of that is, is kind of blockchain-style, totally open supply lines for field to play. Part of that is, I think, having a third-party auditor, which, we, which we've got. Yeah. And, and part of it, I think, is just... Um, through the openness and the sharing of the, of the of the community, and my view is that there's a great example outside of food in Patagonia, in that they've got to a point where when you buy, in fact, I think I'm wearing one. Yeah, I am wearing one. But so when you buy on these things, you might buy it because it's a nice piece of clobber, but there's trust in there. Yeah, uh, and I think that there's an opportunity to to do the same thing with building these communities of, around food, and and so that means you can do it in a way which avoids that regulatory rigidity which is the problem when you the, you describe it when you when you get these very long kind of list of mustn'ts yeah yeah no it's interesting as we walk around we were looking at some different interesting bits and pieces out on the farm you've got some 
agroforestry that we were looking at. But tea? Were, yeah, Can tea. Yeah, tea. tea. Yeah. Absolutely. As a tea lover. Is that the first time you've seen tea being grown? Full stop, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> never mind, never mind in uh, Herefordshire, yeah. And what's the plan there, Ben? That's a great question. Um, agroforestry obviously becoming more and more mainstream, which is good. I mean, I, I love the concept of agroforestry because... The establishment of an orchard, as you well know, James, means that essentially if I, if I planted that whole field up into an orchard, I've then got to wait three, four, five years for, for return on investment. What I've got there is 17% of that field has gone into, an, into trees, which means I still have 83% of the annual income from annual crops, which is rather quite useful and facilitative. But in terms of the trees themselves, yes, what have we planted? So yes, we have planted some tea. We've planted every single fruit bush that we, we could actually come up with and think of. And then we have planted trees of anything from walnut through almond uh, into hazel into filbert uh, on, a nuts, on, on a nut side. And then everything from apricots to, to plum to cherry to, I can't actually think, crab apple. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think, yeah, mulberry. Um, names and trees because I'm now running out and I know we've planted about 38 different different species oh you've got um, did you say mulberry yes you did yeah yeah well listened yeah well I don't know <laughs> I switch off when you start oh I don't blame you and, and then we've got two rows of truffle infused hazel uh, and oak um, summer truffle uh, alley and a, a winter truffle alley and the tea and the, and the truffles are, as I say, is, is the fun element of, of, of all of this. Mm. The, the fruit element, the idea is, I've got to be careful of sharing all my ideas because somebody's going to beat me to it. But my idea is to set fruit winder business or fruit leather, you know, make fruit leather and actually sell these uh, health snacks um, mm. to, to kids and stuff. And that would be a really nice little cottage enterprise up here with, with all the fruit. Of course, selling fruit through the shop as well we've got so many varieties the idea being early ripening middle and, mm. and late so we can keep the, the, the shop supplied with, with fresh fruit as long as possible and then taking yourself out of that comfort zone or putting a bit of fun or a bit of interest you know um i can just imagine probably not me but helen with a pig trying to find summer truffles because <laughs> i've sold far more than we we, <laughs> we have <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, but but yeah, I just think that element of a bit of fun, you know, going up there with a pig um, and not having a clue what we're doing. Probably the pig will eat most of the trees. Who knows? Uh, in years to come, it would be a bit of fun. Probably run to the tea. Um, but but like I said, I mean, I I just find that the the the, the really inspirational, inspiring bit of of learning of, of of something of taking yourself way out of the comfort zone to just make things so much so interesting and so different and and and, and it's like you know I, I we planted the tea actually in september went back in october and one of these tree tea bushes had got a flower on it so i dragged the whole family out at about you know half past four at night with a head torch to show them um how how, how amazing this this flower was the following night we'd had a frost and gone um and probably 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 frosted the, the whole lot who knows yeah. um but we're, we're just having just having a great time it's just good is it not good fun is it not interesting is isn't that what we should be doing yeah I, it's a bit like joel salatin's um phrase of farm like a lunatic you know we've got a genuine <laughs> lunatic here and he's farming like one out out and about in terms of you're obviously farming as well leading from the front in terms of how you're you're farming yourself can you just give us a bit of an idea of 
what daily life is like at the home farm. At the home you, farm, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have to say it's, it's, it's changed a bit, not necessarily in the direction that I'm keen on, uh, in that particularly over the last few months, trying to work out through these updates to the wild farm protocols, I've been on the road a lot, yeah. um, which was uh, something that I, you know, one of the reasons I got this to was to avoid that. <laughs> but, um, and, so, uh, and so I've gone from a situation where in France, it was me and my mate every day doing everything, yeah. uh, and, which I loved. I mean, not, you know, not, I didn't love every task, but well, yeah, I, yeah. I loved that way of living and finding stuff out. And so, yeah, so I haven't been doing hands-on every day for the past few months. When I am there, uh, well, this time of year, it's that, you know, that slightly uneasy feeling that you get in the bottom of your stomach when you're just aware that spring's coming mm. uh, and all of a sudden it's a bit lighter at six o'clock and, yeah, and it's coming. <laughs> and because there's all kinds of, as always, um, things that uh, I want to find out before recommending them. Yeah. And, and so I won't go to all the details of that, but this thing started with me being obsessed with the idea of pasture cropping mm -hmm. uh, and uh, hence developing this into Romoa and so on. And that's now developed in no small measure, thanks to Christine Jones and other people, into basically things around plant family diversity. Yeah. Uh, and so for some of our growers, that simply means planting wheat and beans. Yeah. But I say simply planting wheat and beans, I'm going to correct myself there, because actually going from a sort of mindset of control, mm. which a monoculture uh, is all based on, to trusting and nurturing symbiotic relationships, which is the thing you moment, which is what happens the moment you put two plants together and you remove all the sides, yeah. is actually massive. Mm. So I don't want to belittle that, but yeah. in any means, it's actually a massive step. It's, it's more than just doubling. Yeah, it's, it's more than just whacking some wheat beans in with the, with the wheat. There's a whole change in relationship with the land that goes yeah. on when you, when you take that first step. And so that's a great way in. And, and, and I'm now working with the Interromoa in a different context uh, it's basically a way of managing more complex infield diversity. And one of the Can things, you just give us some examples of that for well, people that are listening? Just yeah, well, one know. of the things that I want to try this time, and, and, um, and Mike Harrington is going to try it with some of his growers as well, is we can all relate to the planting of cover crops after harvest sometimes being problematic. You don't get enough bang for your buck uh, to get what you want out of them. Uh, and so this year I'm going to try interseeding the inter-row cover crops in May, okay, and then manage them with the mower up until the harvest. But it means that when the harvest is done, uh, the cover crop is implanted and, and it, can, it can it can crack on. Yeah, in, unless you get a very wet wet May June and the and the cover crops up to your neck. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a you know something that we touched on as we were walking around in terms of the the impact of a more volatile climate and farming is about getting the right thing done at the right time and this kind of more nuanced approach and using more diversity and more green cover and everything else and livestock and everything else how do you see the importance of what we're doing in terms of not necessarily mitigating climate change although it, indirectly it should do through mm. carbon cycling and and cooling soil surface and everything else but but in terms of enabling us to in light of food security and an ever-changing climate how do you see the you know the the, the sort of the implications of what we're doing meaning that we can keep producing food is there greater flexibility in these sorts of systems that mean if you have a really wet may do we can we get away with it or do you is that it's not necessarily the, the, the best phrased question but we've got you're a lot so, of you're absolutely right yeah thanks well i mean we've got that bit right probably the most dreadfully phrased question well, you, try, you, you try and phrase what it. are you trying to ask <laughs> I mean, in light of okay the, 
Well, give me your, I give think me I your know view on the yeah. role of regenerative. Oh, Andy knows what you're talking about. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, he listens. That nonsense. <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is, what's your view on the role of regenerative agriculture in terms of food security in light of an ever-increasing volatility of our weather? Brilliant. Why didn't you say that in the first place? Oh, I was just worried. You make me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> me first. Yeah, go on. Um, well, I think... Implicit in a lot of these questions as to whether we can afford to grow things in a, in a different way is the assumption that we can keep growing things in the same way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think we need to remove that as an option. Yeah. Because we're, you know, we're, for all the obvious reasons, both in terms of soil health and, and, and extinction yes. rates uh, and so on, the collapse of ecosystems. So I think that's a really important thing to remove from the table. Yeah. Because that is always the other in the room in those questions. Yeah. Uh, and, and so in terms of... Uh, adapting to climatic extremes, uh, the only protection that we've got, as far as I can see, uh, is soil health yeah. and diversity. Uh, and without those, you know, the, the, the monoculture on non-moisture retaining soil is not the answer, is it? No, no. And I think, actually, um, talking of volatility, it's not just environmental volatility. I mean, the prices of everything fertiliser commodity prices, I mean, how on earth can you predict fertiliser going to £1,000 a tonne, wheat going up to £350 a tonne, all seed rate getting to 900 wasn't it? You know, and then, and then all, almost a collapse. I mean, it just seems, just recently really, on the back of Covid and then the, the, the war in Ukraine, that whilst things were, were, were actually bubbling just before this, it just seems there are extremes that are just... There's an awful lot of people with 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 a thousand pound ton of fertilizer sat in their shed from last year, going to be applying it to crops this year, and wheat wheat plummeting. I'm not quite sure what it is right now, but it, it, it's commodity feed wheat is sub two hundred mm. or, or somewhere around that sort of price from from the heady heights of three fifty. And just imagine feeding, feeding those grains to an animal that that animal isn't actually going to get to the market for for eighteen months, and and whilst the price height at the point of the war, by the time you've actually bought all the, all the inputs, fed the animal, did, did all that sort of thing, and then what's the price actually slump? You're producing a very expensive animal for a very cheap price, and, and this is the problem with agriculture. And this is why I think that the, the, the wonderful thing about diversity and adding all these things to soil and adding these herbal lays between the rows of, of wheat, of which you know, a percentage of clover and protein and nitrogen is, is, is added, is becoming more and more and more important in terms of this, this finished project or, or the idea of the whole thing. And then, of course, it's the understanding that actually to make the best use of these um, inter-row companions or, as we call them, the, your perennial strips of clovers and things, is to actually put them through an animal. You know, the profitability yeah. of, these, uh, of a farm is not just these, the strips of the wheat. It's actually, we need to harvest the bounty of the two rows and make sure we're putting both through an animal and then recycling that, that nutrition into the soil and providing more nutrition, better soil health for the, for, for the following crop and that sort of thing. So for me, volatility is not just climate volatility, but we're seeing it across the crop and probably more volatile other things I haven't even thought or mentioned. But it's, it's quite a scary world out there mm. at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think, I think fundamentally, if you're trying to make the engine of your production biological rather than uh, chemistry based. Yeah. In in the world we live in, it's just got to make sense. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm touching on the livestock element. Have you, you, do you have livestock on your yeah. holding at the moment? Yeah. And can you just give us a bit more about the, the actual farming side of what you're doing on, your, on the National Trust ground that you've got? Yeah, well, it's, it's 750 acres, of which about a third is ridge and furrow, so permanent grassland. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I should say that I've not been there very long. I've yeah. been there 18 months. Oh, there you go. So we're just uh, getting going. You but, can do a lot in 18 months, though, right? <laughs> well, so I've seen outside, yeah. I've not quite reached those dizzy heights. <laughs> that was just four months. <laughs> that was just this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, I found a fantastic local shepherd. Yeah. So I've managed to get going with, with grazing all the winter cereals and post-harvest grazing for the one. And are they, and are they your sheep? Or are they no, they're his sheep. Venture, he, the sharecropping type? Yeah, yeah. So he takes care of all that. Um, I've got um, about 35 red Sussex. I had 100 in France, so mm-hmm. I need to get that herd up so we can create an actual, actual sort of viable mob. Yeah. Because it was definitely the action of the of the mob that got me obsessed with pasture cropping in the first yeah, place when yeah. I saw what happened on these heavily degraded maize-growing soils that I'd rather stupidly uh, put all the family silver into. <laughs> um, and so what I'm focusing on there uh, at the moment is trying all the different incarnations of diversity within crops from wheat and beans all the way through to the interseeded cover crops and so on and seeing what works seeing what doesn't work um, looking at some of the effects on microbial communities in association with Rothamsted yeah Uh, and yes so the grazing the the, the sheep are the the main grazing engine at the minute until I build up the um, the The Sussex herd do you you want to just touch on that uh, Rothamsted study because I think it's quite fascinating what you're trying to find or prove or unprove or disprove yeah um, you know, just the, the, the basics, but I, I thought it was... Yeah, yeah well, basically, um, under the, the, the wild farmed protocols, rules, whatever you want to call them, it's um, plant diversity at all times. So planting something with your cereal and a cover crop, if, if it's ahead of a spring drilled cereal. Yeah. No insecticides, fungicides or herbicides. And then nutrition based on need, which we talked about before. Yeah. That's the nub of it, really. And so um, our biggest point of friction in terms of recruiting farmers is the no glyphosate thing. Yeah. It would make our life an yeah. awful lot easier if, if we, <laughs> just said, yeah, if we allowed right. it. And, and to cut a long story short, whilst updating these, these things, I did um, a lot of digging into research papers, all the ones I could find, about glyphosate. And the issues come up that, that we know about. But it's a fair point that's raised by really good regenerative farmers in the UK. A lot of that data around the consequences of glyphosate come from Roundup Ready corn soybean systems, very heavy applications, you know, often kind of corn, soya, but, you know, fallows, no cover crops, no barley, so on and so yeah. forth, you know, so it's not really... So a... far wrong the other way. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, there's one, one thing blamed for it. Yeah, and so we end up quite often in a conversation where someone is saying, if I use a small dose of glyphosate buffered with citric acid to kill a cover crop ahead of drilling spring wheat or whatever, that's better than tillage. Mm-hmm. Or is it? And actually, when you when you look <laughs> at the, the the research papers for that, there aren't any. Yeah. So the trial that were were Touchwood uh, is in place uh, for this spring, is where we're going to take a cover crop field, destroy half of it with glyphosate, turn up the other half with shallow tillage, as a wild farm grower would, plant a wheat and bean bicrop, and see what happens. Firstly, to the soil community over the growing season. Um, so in other words, whether one would expect that maybe the soil community takes a bit of a, a, a bigger hit in the first instance with the tillage, but is there some kind of antibiotic effect of the glyphosate which lingers longer? I don't know. Anyway, see what happens to the microbial community over the growing season. Uh, and also test the grain from both halves of the field for any residues 
in the harvested crop. And uh, I think at least, you know, one study won't solve everything, but at least we've got a bit more information. For me, I mean, that, that's been the million dollar question really for the past five, six, seven years for me. You know, what, where is the enemy? Is it, is it in a glyphosate application of a litre and a half to, 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 to do what it needs to do or actually tillage? The problem, of course, then comes tillage, what, what depth of tillage are you using and, 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 and all that sort of thing. I mean, Dr. Christine Jones is a firm believer in that, t- well, and, and quite a few others actually, Graham Sait being another one, is, 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 is of the opinion that a small amount of surface tillage actually, well, whilst it does a, a bit of initial damage, generally rejuvenates the, the soil quite a bit and, and, and actually leads to an explosion in, in soil life, whereas glyphosate seems to, seems to linger. But, you, you know, these are the studies that I've been desperate for somebody to do and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased somebody's going to at least... <laughs> have a go. Have a go. And get some answers. And, I mean, it, and it's just so hard. The trouble is, you know, measuring microbial populations in a field, you can, you can move two foot and the whole thing changes to drastically. So mm. it's, it's trying to get that, that consistency of measurement between the, the two. But, you, you know, fantastically, you're giving it a go, and I'm, I'm desperately excited about the, about the results, really, of what, what you're doing. Uh, yeah, space. absolutely, yeah. So, so you've, you've, you've talked about wild farm wheat and, and that sort of thing. Now, of course, a rotation, in my mind, doesn't base around annual cropping of wheat followed by wheat followed by wheat. And therefore, where, where are you now in terms of wild farm, what you're doing now and, and potentially where, where you're hopefully going to get into in the future of making a, a more sustainable wild farm rotation, so to mm. speak? Is it, is yeah, well, it's a good point. I, mean, I think there is a really interesting point around rotations in general and whether they were an effective tool at, at mitigating disease risk for monocultures. And when you get out of monocultures, um, you know, Nature doesn't rotate, um, so but there's, I think there's a discussion to be had there. But um, yeah, in the short term, farmers need options. So what we say at the minute is that anyone who grows a by crop of peas or beans, we just buy the lot. We deal with the separation. We, again, commercially that's highly challenging, but we're <laughs> just trying to um, rem- remove barriers to entry as much as we can. Yeah. Uh, and working with Hobber Dodds, I've also been doing brilliant work in pulses for for, yeah. for years. Um, so we can try and make sure that ones that get hit human spec um, can get you know the right the right market. Uh, we've managed to add barley to the offering, uh, which is great. And uh, the one that we really want to get over the line soon is oats. Mm-hmm. And I think when we get to the point where we've got barley, wheat, oats, and pulses, you know you can you can build something, which is important because under the new updated. I don't like the word protocols, but rules doesn't sound right either. But anyway, standards. I'll just, standards is good. Standards <laughs> well, better. You've been in enough of those meetings, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what we're saying in that is that, um, you know, as everyone here knows, but change takes time. Yeah. And so from now on, a wildfire relationship will be a three-year plan. Agronomy support to build that three-year plan so that you've got time to see what happens when soils begin to respond. And hopefully that will give confidence for people to you know enact change over a wider area which some of our growers already have not with us but across the whole farm they've done a bit and this actually this is working which is the point of this whole yeah. operation when when you start you don't have to do the three years mm-hmm. but if you do do the three years you have to keep doing it on the bit where you started so you can right. you can see what happens yeah and so it's important that we've got the ingredients to to, to build that that three-year rotation In, interestingly i mean um, with your livestock is there not a uh, temptation for wild wild farm beef wild farmed meat 
hundred percent. I mean, we, we, sp- we spend a lot of time working with growers, particularly in the areas of the UK where livestock's pretty much disappeared, uh, trying to help them with flying herds. Uh, it's a requirement, or it will be once these new uh, standards <coughs> come in. <laughs> that, um, before we just recommended, you know, I've just seen it with my own eyes and a lot of our growers have just a massive impact of livestock on the landscape. So it was a recommendation. What we're now saying is that once in the three year program minimum, you have to put livestock across your, yeah. your crop or your cover crop, just so you can see it. Yeah. And we'll help people with that. And so the, the, the logical conclusion of that would be, uh, you know, wild farm beef, wild farm lamb. Uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. And that is simply, a, it's an hours in the day question. You know, we're, we're, we're a small team of people trying to run a public education program, trying yeah. to support a, a big community of farmers. And also massive part of the challenges here is we're trying to deal with the fact that our whole grain storage and processing infrastructure is based around monocultures. And yeah. as soon as you start making those into bi-crops and polycrops, yeah. it's hard. Yeah. So we've just got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. But if you want to, you know, add it to your list. Yeah, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> Helen? It's, 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 yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, a, a regenerative label on on the back of livestock production would be would be nice. And the wild farm, if there's one thing out in the marketplace at the moment that's certainly got a lot of respect, it is that wild farm brand. You know, yeah. the people that have been dealing with it and the people who've heard of it are certainly, um, and that's what I like about it. At the mo- you know, as long as it doesn't get too bastardised, really. And, and uh, but at the moment, it's it's got a it's got a reputation of, you know, this is actually some really keen good things happening and, and all for the right reasons and that's why I think actually if we can keep keep that name you can yeah. keep that name where it is I, I, I think the world's your oyster well, I mean I think the livestock thing is, is you know something I've been saying to um, since the kids used to come to the farm in France a lot, I was a vegetarian for 20 years mm. and so when I took a, a cow to the abattoir for the first time that was a moment of deep introspection mm. uh, and I stood with the with the animal it's all very lo-fi down there so it's horse box you know I d- delivered it myself yeah dropped it off it was up to me to put it in the right pen and all that and uh, and I stayed with it until nightfall and uh, and I asked myself a lot of questions yeah. during those couple of hours and I remained convinced that in terms of mankind's relationship to living things in the widest possible sense uh, the impact of livestock in farming systems is just an immeasurable upside. Yeah. Uh, and when the kids used to come to the, the farm, there'd be a kind of worm test where we'd say, right, go to the neighbouring field, which is organic, mainly growing soybeans, and anyone who finds a worm, free pan of chocolate, you know, yeah. safe in knowledge that they just wouldn't yeah. find one, and then they come back to our fields. Did you ever buy any pan of chocolate? And then, well, there was a bakery there, so I never had to buy any anyway. <laughs> but, to buy it. <laughs> but yeah, didn't have to give many away. No. Uh, and then compared to all the, the abundant life in uh, in the pastures, so I just think that the the, the message um, of the roles that livestock can play in in a flourishing farm ecosystem, as as contrasted to the meat, which gets a lot of the stick and is a, and the main driver for veganism and so on, yeah. is a story that really really needs to be told. Because yeah. that that feeds into I was thinking that. In terms of the, the potential rate of change as this, this new way of, well it's not a new way, but returning to an old way in a, in a modern era way of farming gains traction because typically the majority of monoculture seed crops have been grown for animal feed. And then, because we've had this, you know, the animals have gone off the land and they're all in sheds and then you've got monocultures being grown in a chemical way uh, to feed the livestock, which comes with all the problems that we've been talking about. 
as you then bring the animals back onto the land and you're feeding them this diverse, more, you know, natural diet and everything else, you almost, almost, the, you, we need the livestock back out of the sheds, back on the ground, eating diverse plant communities. Because to my mind, it's almost, it's, it's a bit like pulling the thread on an old jumper, you know, and, and all of a sudden you've got no jumper left. Because it really, and for most farmers, when, you, like you say, if you can just demonstrate the change to a farmer and the penny drops, I think the rate of change potentially is, is huge in terms of just getting that connection back and getting the mixed farming back on as much land as possible. And it's one thing to do it on small scale, but then it's about like these flying herds. And because it's a, it's a classic thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, there are no cows around here. Yeah. Well, there are no she- sheep over here. And, and the, the sort of like the arable livestock divide, maybe east-west to a certain extent. Yeah. So there's, there's, what do you, you know, Ben? It's massive potential, don't you think? That as the as it gains traction, that before, I would like to think that before long, it's just normal. It's farming, like you say, yeah, it comes yeah, back yeah. to. It's not regenerative. It's farming is regenerative. I, I mean, for, for for me, animal animals have, have, have transformed this farm. For, for, for it's for, awesome seeing them here. For, I have for, to say. for numerous reasons. First and foremost. Animals are the soul of the farm. First, you know, I, I can't, I can't explain more. Seeing a calf born, seeing what, whatever, those things are magical moments on a farm. That sort of thing. The other thing I've noticed is that the management of weeds or cover crops or any, anything, but, but call them weeds to, to a greater or lesser extent. There's always an animal that will actually convert what is essentially a problem. Into, into, into something that's food, that's something that's therefore saleable. You know, we were talking about up, up by my wood, you know, the ingress of, of, of some brambles, you know, fencing um, an area in, in our woodland to allow pigs to, to, to actually regenerate the bluebells and that sort of thing. And, and of course, if you leave them in there for two years, it turns into a muddy quagmire of absolute no benefit. If you leave them in there for six weeks, where they actually take a bit of bramble, a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and a bit of nudging, and a bit of ground turning over, allowing new saplings to take, take, take hold, and that sort of thing. That's exactly what a wild boar would have done back in the day of, of, of walking through there, and, and that sort of thing. So animal, animals are the solution, and I 100% agree with you on, on this whole veganism and that sort of thing, of which I've got no real problem with. It's just the lack of understanding of how amazing they are at building soils, managed correctly. You can mismanage animals as you can anything else and destroy your soil, but actually, if it, you know, it's not that complex. Managing them correctly can, can make a big difference. I like that. Instead of going in with a flail, burning diesel and, and chopping up brambles, you just feed, feed them to your pigs. Yeah. And, and, get and goats. A, 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 and goats and get a, a, an even, even better outcome. So I've got a question for Andy. We've walked uh, about a third of the farm, but you, you've got kind of a, an idea of what we're trying to achieve here. You look through a different set of eyes, and I always ask um, the same question when somebody's coming to have a look round. Where does Wild Farm fit here? What should I be doing? And um, <laughs> uh, and that sort of thing, because I, I, I'm, I'm very keen to get involved in, in what I think is a great movement, and, and therefore I'm going to ask you to give me some some uh, ideas of what I should be doing. Yeah, well, I'm obviously not going to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, no, I mean, obviously... Uh, the landscape that you're creating here is the landscape that we're trying to create all over the country. You know, so uh, uh, in the same way that there's a, a neighbouring farmer of mine has been an, an enormous source of help and just become a great mate, mate actually called Sam Phillips, who's a wild farm grower, 
but he's doing it all already. Yeah, he's doing the whole thing already. You know, so it's just it's a very easy fit. And so all you know, all you need to do is get some beans in that wheat and yeah. dial down the herbicides and um, and your uh, and your rape companions. Yeah, and, uh, jobs are good. You you try and you try and take vetch out of all sea rape. There are ways and means, and I, I just wonder whether the sheep might might actually, if we turn the sheep in, whether they can graze the vetch down low enough um, and ignore the brassica. Could end up with nothing. <laughs> but it, again, the beauty of having an um, agroforestry alley crop, you could fence the sheep into one part and just do that and experiment see and see what happens. And I think, mm. you know, those are those those moments that you take yourself out of that comfort zone and try it. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm dead keen on on planting some some more farm um, crops here. I, I love the ethos. And I think I need to be part of that movement before before you become saturated, to be honest. And who knows when that might be. Um, but I think I, I, I've got to move. Yeah, well, that would be an absolute pleasure, it goes without saying. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that rape thing, it's a classic example of the difficult decisions that have to be made, you know, because you can see that the rape looks in great heart, no sign of any damage, and uh, the companions are doing a great job. And... Um, and to remove them as it stands requires a bit of herbicide and what's best. Well, you know, yeah. there are no black and whites here, but, you know, our, our standards. Um, That's it. Got it I'm glad I've helped in some way today. <laughs> you know, we're, we're taking the best sort of consensual approach we can amongst our, our growers so we can yeah. define something that we can explain to customers and yeah. the customers know that if they buy that, that they're participating in landscapes that are healing. Yeah, no, it's great. I think it's, um, it's been awesome to meet you. And um, and to have a chat and a walk around the farm here, and you know, so many people have been. And the reason we do these really is to, for this very reason, just to have conversations, meet people, like-minded people, and to meet someone that's actually getting properly serious on a at scale with these huge ambitions to to affect change right across the you know the landscape and the country, um, because the the knock-on benefits in terms of human health, you know, the, the environment and avoiding us losing our place on this planet, to be perfectly honest. You know, it's pretty inspirational. Right? From my point of view, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Um, it's been a pleasure to be back at Townsend, as always, and to see what's going on. It's, uh, it's it, yeah, it always makes me feel slightly tired as I walk away, but um, <laughs> never as tired as Helen actually is. But So thanks for coming to see us, and I hope this isn't the last time that we, we meet up. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.